Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Ontario government's line-by-line audit of government spending was released yesterday. This is by Ernst & Young and recommends changes of what, how to get the deficit, they say, under control. Now, the Treasury Board president has stressed that the government is not going to cut any jobs, but they are going to rein in expenses. Uh, just how do they intend to do this? Well, it's got a lot of people concerned about the methodology, I suppose, and exactly what they're going to be targeting. Barry Kay joins us, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, uh, specializing, of course, in Canadian and U.S. politics. Barry, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Let let me ask you right up front, from a philosophical standpoint, if they're going to cut and try and $6 billion in savings uh, and and find what they say efficiencies, I mean, is is efficiencies a euphemism for cuts and job losses and, and program cuts? Sure. Uh, back during the election, uh, the uh, the current premier uh, Ford was kept talking about the fact he was going to find places. Efficiencies was the euphemism he used, uh, without being at all specific about where it was going to be. And one gets the sense that indeed they're just sort of pet issues that he uh, pet problems that he thinks are are not necessary for the for the public. But there was never much um, transparency as to what was actually going to be cut. The, the notion that, um, the, you know, it's almost predictable every time there's a takeover of a new party in government in Queen's Park, maybe in Ottawa too, but certainly in Queen's Park, they always complain that the books are so much worse than they thought, that the previous government hid things in, in, in various ways, such that the economic uh, situation facing the province is terrible. This isn't new. I'm sure the Liberals did it when they replaced the Conservatives, the Conservatives when they replaced the NDP and so forth. It goes back into time. But there never was a great deal of discussion about where it was all to come from. The idea of um, not cutting jobs, I believe that. <laughs> not cutting, at least, not cutting, not firing people. Um, cut jobs certainly are going to be cut. They're going to be cut with regard to attrition. And we're frankly, we're seeing it at the university. Uh, we're, the university being funded in, in large part, not ex- completely, uh, by, the, uh, by the provincial government. Um, there are, when people retire at my university and on many other universities across the province, uh, they are not replaced, certainly not replaced by full-time people. They're replaced, perhaps in some cases, by, uh, by part-timers uh, getting a, a part-time salary, which is very much a small fraction of what might otherwise have been the case. Now, that's just one example that I happen to be close to. But this is the kind of thing that is going on. I'm not sure what all the programs are yet. I suspect that uh, the premier isn't sure yet. But this will be the rationale for him to sort of go after programs that he's just not sympathetic to because they don't favor people like him or people that he's philosophically, uh, you know, simpatico with. Well, and we've seen that already with a couple of the announcements they've made. I mean, you know, the the the, the PharmaCare project, of course, that was going to give uh, increased, uh, you know, f- uh, prescription uh, m- coverage is gone. Uh, they simply said, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, so that's that's not a, a, you know, they're not caught firing anybody for that, but it's going to mean less service. And I, I guess what we need to do is, is a, try to get some determination here as to exactly which ones they're going to target. Yeah, the guaranteed income uh, program. Yeah, that's gone too, yeah. Hamilton, yeah, that, that's another example. There's going to be more of it. It's going to be 4% of the budget. Um, I'm not surprised that this was happening, at least in the general sense. What the specific targets are, I'm not sure. And I, 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 frankly, I'm not sure that he knows yet either. And it may be influenced somewhat. Look, there, there's games playing with these budgets all along. The Liberals did it, and I'm sure the Conservatives did it before, in terms of trying to, using various mechanisms to try to make the, the budget deficit look less than it might otherwise be. 
So there is some legitimacy to his criticism about the fact that the Liberals probably were playing games with the way that they did the budgeting, because everybody does it. Oh, sure. I'm sure the next government that will also one day replace him will probably be saying the same thing. I, yeah, but there's, there's... Well, I'll give you an example. I mean, when Mike Harris took over in 1995, uh, very much the same mantra, by the way. We've got to find efficiencies. We've got to get the, the budget under control, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and one of the first things you looked at was social assistance and simply said, I think about a third of the people on there are cheating the system, so I'm slashing the rates. He had no science behind that at all, but he did it anyway. And and you have to ask yourself, well, what are they going to be targeting? Because the Ernst & Young report that was released yesterday, Barry, says that, yeah, the Liberal government spent a lot of money, but most of it was on education and health care, uh, which I, I, I would think would be sacred cows in some people's minds, but maybe not so much with the new government. There are going to be, they're being cuts again. I, I don't know what all the other universities are doing, but I know we're already facing cuts of 5 to 10%, and we've been doing that for several years in a row. And unfortunately, the people who are, are affected are people frequently at the bottom of the ladder. Um, I no longer have somebody to, in to clean my office. Uh, people, and again, I don't want to personalize and make it sound like I'm at, at great risk or problem. It's not. But it's just the fact that the people whose jobs are at risk are the people who come in and do the cleaning and who are in the, the, the most vulnerable positions. And I suspect that's also going to pertain to, I'm not sure yet because the announcements haven't been made, so I don't want to prejudge them. But yeah, my guess is that the conservative governments tend to be less sympathetic to people at the bottom rung of the ladder in society who are dependent on, on various social, social safety programs. Uh, we'll see how it's going, but um, this is just the way it's going to be. And I think a lot of the, the thing that troubles me about Ford, it's interesting with regard, I know it's an issue that's kind of passed now with regard to the uh, City Council of Toronto being downsized. Um, ultimately, he didn't have to use the, um, the notwithstanding clause as he threatened. But the fact that he was prepared to do that suggests he's kind of bloody-minded about this whole thing. When he decides he knows what's best for everybody, he's not listening to other people around him. And I think we saw it on that particular issue. It turned out that the courts ultimately um, agreed with his position anyway. But I think that's what we're into. My, my fear is that he is not going to be listening to some of the more conventional middle-of-the-road conservatives in terms of the kinds of choices he's going to be making about policy cuts. What about the usual uh, targets in situations like this? Uh, I went over to get a bottle of wine last weekend uh, at the LCBO, and, and we got into a discussion with one of the staff members there, and he says, you know he's going to come back and, and start running after us because the conservative governments always do that. You know, we're going to sell the LCBO. They haven't said that yet, but uh, they have talked about dumping assets, and obviously that's one of them. Yeah, although that is a cash cow for the province, and I think, I, I'm not sure that the LCBO would be targeted. Philosophically, he probably would be uh, sympathetic to privatizing things as much as he could. Um, I'm not sure that will be the case there because the, LC, the LCBO um, and the beer store, for that matter, too, probably bring, bring in money for the province. Uh, that's not to prejudge or to suggest that I know what's going to happen. I don't know, and as I, I say, I don't think those decisions have been made yet. But this is just the, the natural orientation of this particular individual. And again, I'm most troubled by the fact that he does not seem to be, uh, uh, there's going to be some unfavorable comparisons made with our neighbor, the leadership of our neighbor to the south, but that he just does not listen to people around him. That's my real fear, because I think that's what happened in the Toronto City Council case. It didn't turn out that it was necessary, but I think it's revealing the way he handled the situation there. Well, and, and again, it comes down to methodology, as you say. I, I, you know, the contract disputes that, uh, that uh, some colleges and, and, and teachers unions have had over the last little while is about the fact that, like you say, part-time positions are evaporating uh, as people retire. Nobody's getting laid off. You're absolutely right. Uh, but, you know, once that person who's full-time retires, they said, well, you know what, we, you can have a part-time person if you want, but that means no benefits. That means probably less salary. So there, there is, a, a, there is a, a, a way of doing this, and it's really wordsmithing, isn't it? 
a lot of it's indirect, but various agencies and programs and policies that are influenced by provincial government spending and the uh, health, of course, the health and education sectors are, are rife with that. It runs all the way through. That's where cuts are going to be made because close to three quarters, not quite, but close to three quarters of provincial spending, certainly over 70% of provincial spending goes to education and health care. It'll affect transportation. It'll affect parks and recreation. It'll affect a lot of other things, too. But the real bucks are in health and education and those sectors just better watch out. Well, and and because they're the targets, and, and you're absolutely right. I want to be clear about this. I mean, we're speculating about what the Ford government's going to do. Uh, nobody's got uh, clean hands on this. I mean, because the Liberal government was responsible for an awful lot of the cuts, that, and they don't close things down. They just reduce the funding for them and, and put the pressure on those agencies or institutions, and whether it's a healthcare or an educational institution, to try to make do with less. And oftentimes, that's a, a pretty daunting task. I agree. I agree. Um, the, and, and frankly, it allows the, the specifics to be determined by people in other positions other than his own. So the provincial government's responsible for the lack of money, but the frequent, frequently the decisions about who's, which job is not going to get replaced is, is taken care of by people further on, uh, further on down the line. Uh, and we're seeing, again, uh, it's, it's interesting, again, at the university, for the first time in my memory, I think our, pol- our particular department does not have any room in any course. Every, uh, every course has a waiting list, uh, at least political science at Laurier I'm talking about now. Uh, and uh, we're just seeing more pressure and squeezing. I don't want to make it sound like our problem. I'm, I'm doing just fine, and the people I'm close to are okay as well. But there are people who are being squeezed in the system. People are not getting the courses they would like to get at, is to use this example. But people aren't going to have the same kind of access to various specialized health care programs, various other kind of programs, particularly assisting the disadvantaged in our society. That is the sector of society that I think this particular government and this particular premier are probably less sympathetic to. But we'll, we'll see just how it's going to play out. But there are, without question, going to be cuts. And, and let me say, some of those cuts were beginning even before uh, Ford came into power because the Liberals were doing the same sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's just a matter of, you know, it doesn't matter who's in the corner office over there. It just seems to be the way that they do things. Uh, but I guess the concerns an awful lot of people is that the, 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 the way they look at this right now, it, the bottom line seems to be the number one priority here, not necessarily the effect it's going to have on the programs or effect on communities. Yep, yep. Um, that's, that's where it is. Again, we're, we're still sort of in, in the dark and, and speculating about just what's going to happen. Uh, I'm in a position where I could be retired at this point, and, and frankly, I love my job, and I'm happy with the people I work with, so I'm in no rush to retire. But I will not be replaced, and as a result, my department, the administration, might be happy to see full-time faculty go. But the department doesn't want people like me to go because of the fact that we will not be able to, I will not be replaced in the same kind of way. And that, that may be a mind, I'm not sure everyone else in the society is as happy with their job as I am, but this is a, a consideration that there's going to be resistance, uh, there's going to be encouragement for people to not give up their jobs for fear that, they, that that job isn't going to be done by anybody in the future. What about, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll use that ugly word that, uh, that's been kicking around for about the last 20 years now, downloading. Uh, could well be. Uh, certainly that was sort of the hallmark of the, um, of the uh, conservative government under Harris. I'm not sure. Again, I, 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 I always wondered about the city. I keep coming back to the city council decision because that's perhaps been the most controversial so far in terms of, of decisions. Um, it was suggested that he was just getting even with downtown councillors who hadn't treated him well. But in fact, when one looks at the, the whole formation of Toronto City Council, there are going to be as many conservative supporters of, um, of the Ford government that are probably going to lose their jobs because there just won't be as many city councillors as before. I'm not sure the overall decision-making on Toronto City Council is going to be so fundamentally different. Uh, if one looks at Toronto City Council normally, 
uh, it's not the left that usually dominates or the right that usually dominates. It's sort of the swing voters in between. Um, and when one looks at the gather, there's going to be um, fewer people in areas like um, uh, the Trinity Spadina and the, uh, the, uh, the downtown Toronto Center ridings and Danforth and so forth. But there's going to be fewer, uh, fewer people from Etobicoke North and from Scarborough, areas that have supported the Conservatives. Um, and it may be that he just feels that the provincial um, government will be able to have more leeway with a smaller council. I, I, I still don't quite understand it. I don't think it's, it, it, it really helps the right and hurts the left in the context of Toronto City Council. Uh, but um, goodness knows what's in his mind. He, he's certainly somebody who has his a priori prejudice and ideas from the past. Doesn't seem to be particularly susceptible. We'll see. It's still early days, and I, I don't want to make final suggestions. But I, I was really troubled by the, the fact that he would use such a sledgehammer uh, with the notwithstanding clause for what seemed to me a relatively trivial matter in terms of whether there were 22 more or less members of Toronto City Council. But this is somebody who, in fact, I think knows his own mind and is frequently prepared to resist the, the advice of more moderate uh, forces around him. And that's, I'm afraid, I, in my mind, I'm uh, fearful of likening it to, uh, to what Donald Trump's doing in the States. The other mantra here that, that just about every government follows is that if you're going to do something drastic uh, that's going to have an impact, you usually do it in the first year or two of your mandate. Yeah, yeah, uh, people, which, might, yep, we're, people won't be so mindful of it come uh, 2022 when the next uh, provincial election uh, yeah, he's certainly coming out with a bang, it seems, and this uh, this uh, report from Ernst & Young is, is an example of what he might do. But it, it, we're, we're just seeing parameters with that. We're not seeing the specifics, and uh, I'm sure he's got his, um, you know, his, his staff people working on all sorts of ideas to cut programs. But programs will be cut, and people, who, particularly those that are concerned and dependent on the health and education sectors, frankly, all programs, but the health and education sectors uh, should be uh, wary of this and perhaps prepared to uh, raise a stink as best they can. Well, Smokey Thomas, uh, Warren Smokey Thomas, the president of the Ontario Public Service Employees Union, has already spoken about this, and he's very wary about what this is going to do to, to his people uh, for the reason that you just explained. I mean, they, you know, they're not going to fire people necessarily, but they say as people retire through attrition, there are going to be fewer people in the workforce. And the civil service always seems to be a target when governments look for austerity. They've already announced that there's going to be a freeze on new, I guess, permanent positions. Yeah. Will, uh, be certain things will have to be done. They may be done on a contract or short-term basis. Um, we'll see. Oh, yeah, Thomas, well, he knows what's going on there. Um, th- th- this isn't a brand-new phenomenon. We certainly saw it in the Harris days, and we saw it perhaps to a lesser extent in the intervening period with the, uh, with the liberals. But, yeah, there are just going to be fewer people doing things, and goodness knows, uh, again, the, uh, the problem for the, in the old days with the Harris decisions, of course, it led to Walkerton. There weren't people that were sort of monitoring water safety in that particular part of the province. And that, not uncoincidentally, sort of led to the, the change in public opinion that led to the, the ultimate defeat of the Conservative government. I hope it doesn't get so bad that that's what's going to happen, but I wouldn't be surprised if things are moving in that direction. Barry Kay from Wilfrid Laurier University. As always, Barry, thanks so much for this. Thank you. Bye-bye now. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting day, an eventful day, of course, of the United Nations yesterday. Uh, Donald Trump addressed the U.N. Uh, Justin Trudeau didn't, but now we're told that he might uh, later on today, uh, which is a, a bit of a change in plan. They actually had a brief meeting yesterday, too, uh, at some luncheon or something, and uh, Trudeau went over and tried to shake his hand, and I guess they got a handshake, and that was about it, and then Trump went back to whatever he was doing. But uh, there was obviously no discussion about NAFTA, which is a bad news situation because, well, that one of those deadlines that seems to come and go is it coming up again this weekend. And the uh, lead U.S. negotiator, Robert Lighthizer, says that, uh, look at, you know, Canada's running out of time. Uh, tick, tick, tick. 
But he says we'll still negotiate after, even if they, they miss the deadline. But they're going to move ahead with the Mexico deal. Marvin Ryder is here from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University to talk about uh, the latest twists and turns in this. <laughs> uh, is, is, it's like a soap opera. Well, it is. It is. And, and obviously, Lighthizer is trying to put some pressure on uh, the Canadian contingent right now. i, I got to tell you, just before we get into to where we are in the negotiations, uh, I, I read uh, Bob Woodward's book called Fear, mm-hmm. and uh, I know a lot of people want to talk about about the ineptitude, etc., of the of the Trump administration, and and there's a lot of evidence in that. Yes, but there's also some very insightful aspects about Trump's trade ideas and po- and concepts. Uh, he, I, I guess, just he has been surrounded in the early days of his administration by people that said, "Don't do tariffs. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad for our economy. It's bad for everybody." Uh, expand free trade deals, and he would not listen to them. He said no. they gave him, you know, report after report saying, "See, Mr. President, this is," and instead, those guys are gone now because they just got so frustrated. And he's brought in probably the only two people he could find <laughs> <laughs> that that think trade and tariffs are, 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 you know, go together. One is Navarro, of course, and the other was Wilbur Ross, and it was Ross that brought in Lighthizer. Right, and I think Larry Kudlow, uh, who's now his economic yeah. advisor from TV, he's of that opinion. So, Bill, there are two camps in the world today. There is there are people who are free traders who believe that the future is opening borders and allowing goods to move and let each nation produce that that they're good at and buy from other nations that which they are not good at. And the others are protectionists. Now, I think what fuels Mr. Trump and look, this is dangerous. I'm almost doing psychoanalysis here in a way. In the last century, from the year 1900 to the year 1999, there is no doubt about it, the world's dominant economic power was the United States. In the 1800s, for that century, it was England, but England's power diminished in the 20th century, and America's power went up. And America's got addicted to being the world's largest power and most economic, uh, powerful country in the world. Nice people like me, academics like me, take a look at this century and say it's not going to last. What we've seen in China since 1968 is nothing short of an economic miracle. And if it just you just extrapolate the line, just extend it forward, probably sometime in the next 10 years, maybe even as short as the next eight years, China will become the world's economic power. And before half a century is gone, India will move into the number two spot. The United States is going to be number three. Mr. Trump doesn't agree. He says, no, no, I can stop that. I can prevent that from happening. They're only succeeding because we, the United States, are letting them. So we're going to flex our muscle once again. We're going to put tariffs on them. We're not going to buy from them. We're going to show them the America that I grew up with that dominated the world. I will say that is a view of people who tend to be older, who remember, quote, the good old days and like the good old days and don't want to embrace the new reality. The free traders, and maybe Justin Trudeau, I'll use him as an example, tend to be younger, tend to realize that the old ways are not coming back, so we have to adjust. Um, Bill, I often get comments from people on the street who tell me, uh, you know, all these leaders, whether it's the prime minister or the premier, and they're, they're always going off to India and China. They must really love taking holidays over there. And I'm saying, no, they're negotiating your future. If these are going to be the dominant powers of this century, we have got to find a way to start trading with them. We don't share a language. We don't share a culture in many cases. Uh, But look, now is the time to build the bridges so when they are the economic powers, we've got well-established trade links. That's what we did with America, but it was just so easy. It was south of the border. So that's where Trump comes from. And and I will tell you that most economists or economic theorists in the United States believe that Mr. Trump is just 100% wrong on this tariff thing. But it plays well 
to people who have lost jobs. People, I used to work in a plant. I had a grade 11 education, and I was making $60,000 a year. It's not fair. It's not right that I've lost my job. And they want to blame something. They either want to blame China or they want to blame Mexico or they want to blame, you know, companies closing and so on and so forth. The reality is most of these jobs have been lost to technology. So, again, free trade is a way to, to keep the industries that you're strong at, keep them built up, and then reach across to, to the next generation of businesses and go accordingly. Mr. Trump, again, is stuck in the old world. I'm going to bring coal back. I'm going to bring iron back. I'm going to do because I'm going to put all these barriers and then American companies will thrive. And it might play well for a year or two. It might do well for a year or two, but we don't see it as a long-term strategy. Well, yeah, for that very reason about technology. But he seems to, it's not just a protectionist. He seems to just basically reject the idea of, of trade at all. I mean, he'd rather just have a U.S. economy that it's internalized. In yeah. other words, we'll, we'll manufacture goods here just for our people and to hell with the rest of the world. Right. And we don't need you. We don't need the rest of the world. Look, we're 350 million people, and we've got buying power, and, you know, to hell with you. Um, at his speech yesterday at the United Nations, and there are, we, I, I don't necessarily sure you want to go into that, but, you know, for instance, he was laughed at, absolutely laughed at, by 183 world diplomats from around the world within the first minute of his speech when he announced that his administration had done more for the United States than any other administration ever in the history of the You go, you know, what is that man smoking? But another theme in his was that I am doing to America what you should be doing to yourselves. You know, make your country great first, supply your goods first, put up barriers and, and provide your own. And, and the world, for the most part, rejected what he had to say. That isn't the theme of the European Union, for instance. I'm not saying the European Union is perfect and that it doesn't have some challenges. And Certainly Brexit is among the, the biggest ones out there at the moment. But the, generally speaking, the theme that the rest of the world is marching to is that we are better to trade with one another to become freer trade, maybe not absolutely free trade, but freer trade, let more things go. And taking the case of Canada, we don't have a domestic citrus industry. Why would we even think about building greenhouses and growing our own oranges and lemons? Let's go to where they grow naturally and buy them from them. On the other hand, let's use what we have in our case. That tends to be things like lumber and coal and natural resources, which we have in great abundance. Let's use what we have naturally to our advantage. And that it's just a very interesting contrast. Uh, I, I just really feel that Mr. Trump is just totally tone deaf to where the rest of the world is going. Well, except he does obviously take some of his personal beliefs and, and applies those to the policies. Uh, there was one Washington insider over the weekend, and one of the news shows I was watching, and just they all kind of blend into one another yeah. after a while, uh, that suggested one of the reasons that they're having a hard, taking a hard line with Canada is because Canada is is working with with China. Uh, they're they're negotiating a trade deal. Uh, they, you know, it, of course, there's the Trans Pacific, but I mean, separate from that, they they're working on deals. And obviously, he he can't stand China. He he looks at them as an enemy right now from an economic standpoint. Mm -hmm. So he's ticked off at Trudeau for going after a China trade deal right now. And he says, "Well, I I'm going to punish you for that." That seems to be the attitude. Yes, the punishment attitude is a very strong part of Donald Trump's theme. If you either either do what I want or I punish you, that's is a strict disciplinarian. So talk about China for half a second. It is certainly true that China has, um, shall we say, put an olive branch to Canada and said, we'd love to talk about a free trade deal with you. Now, Canada has said, thank you, thank you. We, sure, we can do a little talking, but it's certainly not on a front burner and it's not on a burner that's turned up high because trying to do a free trade with China is 
is difficult. The, the legal structure of China, the laws that govern how business operates in China are so different. And our fear would be that if we really did drop the border, uh, companies in China doing things that might be bad for the, for the environment, doing things that are bad for the citizens that maybe don't believe in equal rights for women, what have you, we'd be promoting that. So I think, again, what we're happy to talk to China about is freer trade, maybe letting some things in. And at the same time, China needs some of our products as well. Again, whether it's lumber or oil, but even food, 1.4 billion people have got to be fed somehow. And so Alberta beef and Saskatchewan grain would be a great way to go that. So, yeah, we're talking. And I think, again, Mr. Trudeau, it's not so much that he went to China and said, let's gang up on, on Mr. Trump. We, Mr. Trudeau just will, will talk to anybody, anybody at any time. Uh, this week, I kind of lost in the news cycle, but I think it was on Monday um, or, or may have been last Friday that the uh, president of Nepal was visiting Ottawa to say thank you to China for all the help that we had given them after they'd had an earthquake. Um, on the world stage, Canada is seen as a country that's open and friendly and willing to help, and I think that's a great a great positioning strategy for us, especially in contrast to Mr. Trump, who seems to be unwilling to help, putting up walls, putting up barriers. The contrast couldn't be greater. But but there's a price to pay. And I understand yes. that, you know, the U.S. economy Possibly. is not going to be brought to its knees. That's not going to happen. But he just last week imposed even more tariffs on Chinese goods. He did. And as we, you've talked about, I, I guess he doesn't get this message, uh, it's the American public that's going to suffer from those tariffs. And it's not going to be at Saks Fifth Avenue. You go shopping next week, that's not, but it's going to be at Walmart. Or Dollarama. And that's uh, that's Trump's base. That that's Those are the people that wear the red hats. And they're the ones that are going to see higher prices now. And they're not going to be able to, 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 to connect those dots to say the higher prices are because your president put tariffs on Chinese goods. Mm -hmm. And those are the Chinese goods that you want to buy right now. Those jeans, that whatever it is. <laughs> right. And a bit like Canada, when we decided to counter with tariffs, we selected products very specifically that Canadians first would have an alternative to so that if we put a tariff on, I don't know, let's say Vermont maple syrup, there's also a Quebec maple syrup, so you don't have to pay the tariff if you don't want to. The Chinese are also being very surgical with their application of tariffs. So the difference, Trump is like a sledgehammer. He puts them across whole categories of products to teach somebody a lesson. Chinese, like Canada, are surgical and saying, we're going to put them on very specific goods where our citizens have alternatives. They don't have to buy American fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is. They could buy European or they could buy something else. And we won't put a tariff on or Canadian. We won't put a tariff on those. And, and so this, this is, you know, I think they're being much more clever. And I think Mr. Trump could be much more clever. But, Bill, in a way, this gets us to the question then of what happens with NAFTA, because uh, I think maybe people are a little confused that while we have been talking about NAFTA 2.0, NAFTA 1.0 is still in effect. And so for the last year, 14 months, we have still been operating under the old terms of NAFTA. And if we don't sign a new deal, the old terms still go on. Um, unless he... Unless, yes. That's he, the magic word. He can word. cancel it, but he's got to give, what, uh, six, six, months six, notice. six months notice. So this is the question, that if we miss this deadline, which is October 1st, uh, and it's a self-imposed deadline. There's nothing anywhere that says we have to have the deal by October 1st. Uh, what will Mr. Trump do? To date, he's chosen not, not to uh, announce that the deal is being destroyed in six months. He's also chosen not to put other tariffs. Now, he has threatened to do both. He has threatened to say to Canada, if you don't sign by October 1, then I'm going to put 25% tariffs in the auto industry, which would be disastrous to the Canadian economy and take us back into a recession by the summer of 20, by the early summer of 2019. 
Uh, or, you know, he says, I'm going to just break the deal. So six months from now, that would be, what, March or so of next year, suddenly we have no NAFTA. No one's quite clear what that would mean because NAFTA itself supplanted other trade deals that we had. So would we default back to those old trade deals like the Auto Pact, which governed the automobile sector? So we, we really don't know. We don't know what Plan B is here. A status quo, if he leaves NAFTA, we can live with, and we'll just keep talking away and we'll find a way forward. But if he chooses to change Plan B and say, I'm either going to put tariffs on Canada's automobiles or I'm going to uh, uh, end NAFTA, signal the end of NAFTA, then that would be a, a much bigger challenge for us. Bill, one other quick thing I should note. You know, if he were to go the tariff route on the automobiles, absolutely he'd hurt the Canadian economy. But here's the amazing thing. He'd hurt himself as well. Uh, all the people who've done these models and, and run it through, what would these things mean? Not only would Canada be in recession by the summer of 2019, but so would the United States. And his own auto sector says, this is a hollow threat. Please, Mr. Trump, don't do that. We don't want those tariffs. It's going to hurt GM and Ford and Chrysler, the very companies that you bailed out. 10 years ago when we had the last economic crisis, please don't do this. But again, in Mr. Trump's world, I think, I think he feels that short-term pain, a recession would be short-term pain, is worth the long-term game of teaching a lesson to those Canadians who've been taking advantage of us for so long. Uh, that's the title of Woodward's book, uh, Fear. Uh, and Trump has been very open about that. He says uh, he wants to punish. He's not looking for fairness. He's looking for capitulation. The interesting idea, too, about the negotiations that are going on, and we've talked about Lighthizer and, and Christia Freeland uh, and the roles that they're playing. Uh, when he was appointed, uh, Lighthizer, as the chief negotiator for trade, and it's not just with NAFTA, as you've talked yeah. to us about before. He's, he's talked any trade with the United States right now. Apparently, one of the things that stuck in his craw for the longest time was the dispute resolution process. Uh, he never did like it, and, which is why, obviously, it's still on the table. And I find it interesting that he's characterizing Canada as being inflexible on this, yet it seems to be him that's dug his heels in and said, no, we're not going to continue with this. We want to have something different. Yes, when one side of a negotiation says the other person won't compromise, another way to think of it is, well, they're not willing to compromise either. You know, if both sides had flexibility, we could find middle ground. And there are, we call it hills to die on, things that you say, I just, I can't, I, I cannot in good faith to whatever nation I'm representing change this. Um, why does Mr. Lighthizer hate dispute resolution? I think it's really easy, Bill. In the last 25 years under NAFTA, uh, Canada has filed a number of complaints and we've won every single one of them. America thought they were in the right, and when independent people, a three-party, a three-judge panel took a look at it, they said, no, America, you're wrong. These other nations are right. You're doing bad things. And if you're the party in power, you don't like hearing yeah, that. Exactly. Um, Mexico, I think the reason why Mexico signed the deal it did without a, uh, with, with this sort of, uh, uh, what they call it, Chapter 19, with it not in the agreement, was because they had never filed a complaint. Mexico had never had a problem under NAFTA. Um, uh, the United States may have had a problem, but uh, but Mexico didn't. So they say, well, we can live with it. We don't really need it. We never use that clause anyway. But that's why it's so important to Canada is that we did use it and we were successful using it. But that's also why Mr. Lighthizer wants it to change. He can't stand Canada has this kind of success. And I should point out, Bill, this is true in any multinational trade agreement. You have to have a way to settle disputes. When one country says, oh, no, no, we're not really dumping product in your market. No, no, you've got it wrong. And we say, no, 
We are sure you are. Now, we love you on other things, but on this one, we're going to have a, an independent panel decide, are you dumping or are you not, or are you doing something else that's wrong? Uh, and so we have these in TPP. We have these in CETA. That's the free trade deal with the European Union. We'd have it in any free trade deal with, with uh, Great Britain. You have to have a way to do, resolve these. The American approach is just that th any dispute you have with us will be settled by American courts and the American Supreme Court, and it won't be anybody else deciding this. And we go, no, no, if it truly is a multi-party deal, we need a multi-party panel. Uh, i got a couple of minutes left. What are the chances of, of actually getting a deal then? I mean, even if it's not by the weekend, when, when they seem so entrenched in this, uh, the dispute resolution being one, uh, supply management is another. And I just, uh, Trump again the other day when he was speaking at one of his, uh, hey, you got to love me rallies, uh, was talking about supply management and saying, and, and vilifying Canadians for saying, well, you, they put a 300% tariff on, on our dairy goods. Which is a half-truth. I mean, that's if they exceed the quota. Right. There's a lot of American dairy product that comes in here duty-free, a lot. Uh, and if they go above that, yeah, there's a duty. But, but how often does that actually happen? Well, they'd like it to happen more because in the United States, each farmer produces as much milk, for instance, as they possibly can, and then they seek a market for it. In Canada, supply management means each person produces to a quota, and that quota is manageable. In other words, there's not going to be surplus. We see American farmers dumping milk on fields. So, Bill, let me give you a couple of scenarios. Uh, uh, because of uh, last Friday, there was a conference of foreign ministers in, I think it was Montreal, it might have been Quebec City. Christian Freeland had to be there, and she had to be there at the United Nations in the early part of this week. But we still have a couple of days left this week that they have cleared their calendar, and once again, <laughs> They're going to be in Washington talking. I think there are three scenarios. So scenario one is that we, at the last minute, pull fat from the fire and we get a deal and we can all sit and dance and celebrate and everyone's going to go, thank God that they got past that. Second possibility is that they say, look, we have 95% of a deal. Yes, we haven't agreed on these three things, but let's, let's wrap that up in a bow send that forward to Congress for ratification and just agree to keep talking so that it's, you know, we don't have a Clause 19, we don't have this, but this is what we have. Let's put that to bed, sign a deal, and at least now we're seen as playing ball and we're moving things forward. Of course, the third possibility is that we get to October 1st, that's next Monday, with no deal at all. And my question is, at some point, I think the world is going to say, and when I say the world, I mean Canada's citizens and maybe the American citizens are going to say, what, what's stopping you? Although they've not shared any of this, we can only guess what's stopping them. At some point, I think they'll have to pull back the curtain and say, well, here's why we're not getting a deal. And then say, do the public, are the public willing to do that? If we heard why Christia Freeland wouldn't sign NAFTA, will we get behind her and say, good for you, Ms. Freeland, thank God you're fighting for fill in the blank? Or would we say, really? This is what you're holding on? You know, maybe it's what they call the de minimis level that you can bring goods into Canada today. It's 20 bucks by mail, and then the United States wants you to take it to 800 and you're only willing to go to 25 Come on, Ms. Freeland, you can't buy anything for $25. Let it go. So I think at some point this will have to come out if we don't have the deal by Monday. We'll see. It seems to change by a, a <laughs> day. Marvin, thanks as always. Good That's to have a you soap opera for you. Sure is. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. All eyes are going to be in Washington starting on Thursday, of course, for the, uh, well, the big confirmation hearing. Uh, and this is, uh, as Lawrence Martin writes about in the Globe and Mail today, the showdown between Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford is the mother of all Supreme Court nomination battles. Lawrence, of course, uh, is the uh, public affairs columnist with the Globe and Mail. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, set the scene for us. Lawrence, thanks for the time. Great to have you on the show again. 
good to be here, Bill. Now, you've seen this, and we've all watched uh, some of these nomination processes in the past, and, and none of these things tend to go smoothly. Uh, there's always going to be some partisanship that goes on here. But uh, I, I think you, you've, you've hit the nail on the head here. This, uh, this is bigger than Bork, bigger than even Clarence Thomas, although there are some parallels between this. Uh, How is this going to end? I mean, it, uh, tomorrow's the day, I guess, really, when these two finally get to s- appear in front of this committee. Yeah, by the way, uh, Bill, it's an interesting uh, story just uh, in the Washington Post on this this morning that uh, Kavanaugh's uh, schoolmates at Yale, his classmates at Yale, uh, two women have come forward and, uh, and, and, and are rankled by, by Kavanaugh presenting himself as just a, uh, a regular type uh, drinker and uh, trying to create a... Uh, choir boy image they say they basically say that he was a, a stumbling drunk he did not control his uh, alcohol well at all and and this image that he's trying to create for himself is uh, way off the mark so that's sort of damaging when your two classmates who did drink with him come out and, and say that isn't it but what kind of an impact is that going to have though lawrence when you hear people like like lindsey graham and others uh, simply say look i don't care what goes on i don't care what's said on thursday i've already made my mind we're going to support this guy uh, yeah, but you know, on that committee bill, there is uh, eleven uh, Republicans and and ten Democrats. So it only has to take one Republican vote uh, switching uh, for uh, that that committee to uh, d- deny an advance in the in the uh, in the confirmation process for him. And um, you know, the uh, Kavanaugh's case has weakened uh, in the last few days. He looked like a shoe in a few days ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and not, and not, but not only on account of uh, Dr. Blasey's uh, accusation, uh, but the second one by Ramirez, which isn't really well corroborated, but added f- fuel to the fire to the suspicions. And uh, I, I think that um, there is a, a good chance that uh, one of the Republicans will desert him, or that in the uh, the full Senate vote, uh, you only need a you only need two or three to desert him there to uh, to uh, to block this whole thing. So uh, I, I'm not predicting anything, but it's going to be a really really tight uh, tight show. Well, and and I'm waiting in the wings, of course, is uh, is uh, of course lawyer Michael Avenatti, who's never met a microphone he didn't like, uh, and he says, "Look, it, I've got more. There's more victims. Uh, now they're not going to testify tomorrow, but you're absolutely right. It does seem to to be mounting evidence that there's something going on here." Well, Avenatti said his uh, his client was going to come out before the hearing started. Well, uh, they they start uh, tomorrow, so uh, <laughs> he better get uh, this person out there in a hurry. Um, but uh, Avenatti, as you say, is a publicity hound, but he's a he's a very very effective, uh, <laughs> very very effective attorney. And uh, yeah, if even one even one more comes out. Uh, that might tip the balance, so it's going to be very interesting to see if, in fact, uh, this uh, this occurs. What you said initially about the um, about the importance of this uh, this one, it's so important uh, as compared to others because it it, it extends beyond uh, just a, um, a matter of uh, uh, the judicial body, the Supreme Court body, and the tilt that will have. That's an that's enormous enough, by the way. But if this extends into the political arena with the midterm elections coming the outcome of this this uh, trial so to speak is going to infuriate either one side or the other the left or the right and have an enormous bearing on the uh, 
on the uh, midterm elections. In addition to that, it's a huge test for uh, the 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 Me Too movement, uh, which uh, will which will be emphatically uh, uh, emboldened uh, and, and and vindicated uh, with. Uh, with a defeat of the Kavanaugh nomination, but which will suffer a setback if, in fact, he is uh, he is approved. The uh, the scene tomorrow is is going to be rather unique. Obviously, both are going to be before the committee, not at the same time, clearly. But uh, I, I hear today that uh, the the committee has actually brought in a, a female Arizona sex crime prosecutor uh, to actually, I, I guess maybe the word we want to use here is cross-examine the witnesses. Uh, and it sounds as if they really want to turn the heat up on on, uh, on Christine Blasey Ford tomorrow and just see if they can break her down. Yeah. Now, it, it's good, I suppose, for them to have an independent uh, examiner because uh, if you recall back in the case... Uh, the Clarence Thomas case uh, more than a quarter century ago, um, you know, the, the, the sight of uh, these Republican uh, senators uh, and other senators, uh, uh, their, their hostile questioning of, <laughs> of the accuser uh, was, was kind of over the top. And, and, and in these sensitive times right now, with the Me, that Me Too movement going so strong, uh, the Republican senators doing the cross-examining have to be very careful. Uh, they do not. Uh, they do not get uh, insulting or overly aggressive in their questioning because uh, I think the, uh, the, 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 the politically uh, they would be uh, they would be scorned for doing that. Lawrence, why Kavanaugh? I mean, there are a lot of conservative judges that could fill in, and I mean, if he stepped down, he's not going to do that. But if he did. Uh, who are very like-minded when it comes to some of the policies, even to do with things like Roe v. Wade and things of this nature. But they, they they just seem, well, I guess through Donald Trump, they're fixated and maybe even obsessed with Kavanaugh that this has to be the guy. One reason is that if he is defeated, um, and they, they might not be able to get a, another conservative judge passed because, you know, you have the midterm elections, the Democrats could... Uh, are, are, are predicted to win the House of Representatives. Uh, they could even uh, win uh, the Senate, a majority in the Senate. Uh, that's very much up in the air. But uh, if they get a majority in the Senate, then they can they can block an, any uh, Trump appointment, uh, any Trump conservative appointment. So that that in fact makes the stakes of very very large uh, to get this particular nominee uh, through the process. Lawrence, uh, thanks so much for the time today. Great piece in the Globe and Mail. People should check out the showdown between Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford, the mother of all Supreme Court nominations. Uh, all eyes will be on Washington tomorrow. Thanks again. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Uh, what about the impact that this is having? Obviously, there are those that are looking at, at the way that the Senate has treated this and the way that some of these offhanded comments have been made about the accusations made by Christine Blasey Ford. Uh, just to be dismissive of those, and they're just wondering, what Lawrence mentioned about the hashtag MeToo movement, as to whether or not it's having any impact at all. I want to bring uh, Lenore LaCassic-Foss into the uh, discussion, director of SASHA, the Sexual Assault Center, uh, here in the Hamilton area. Lenore, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Oh, I always love being on your show, Bill. Well, listen, let me ask you about what's going to be happening tomorrow. We mentioned that there's going to be a special prosecutor come in yes. who's, uh, who's going to be, uh, I guess, cross-examining, for all intents and purposes, Christine Blasey Ford. Uh, and and I guess it's got a lot of people in the states right now, and those of us are watching up here asking, did they not learn anything from the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas thing years ago? Yeah, I mean, it, it, 
for sure. It's it's concerning how what's happening around this uh, appointment and the kinds of uh, hate. Um, my understanding is that um, Dr. Ford is, I, I think she's had to go into hiding. Um, she's had death threats. I mean, this is really scary stuff. Well, it is, and you, and you you wonder if if they've made any progress at all on this, and uh, and especially when I hear some of the comments from some of the Republicans on this committee, Lindsey Graham comes to mind, but others because uh, you know yeah. the Senate's going to vote on this, that basically say, I don't care what I hear on Thursday, I'm already going to do this. In other words, it's almost as if even if this is true, we don't care. Yeah, that that is very disturbing, um, and 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 again, it's this idea that um, like I know I'm I'm on the social media universe too. There, there's you know talk that this is some some sort of left-wing conspiracy so again dismissing the reality of sexual violence and 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 situations that happen and people not understanding why um, like even Donald Trump's uh, you know comments that if it was that serious she would have reported and and then the hashtag that you know why I didn't report you know started to trend because it's not understanding why people don't talk about it it's not understanding why women might might wait years and years before they'll share that because they're they're dealing with it still and and yeah so watching this unfold has been really concerning for for the impact on on survivors out there watching and listening well and and the way this is being handled and addressed obviously by the senate but even by the the, the nominee by judge kavanaugh himself yeah. i don't know if he had a chance to see the interview he did on fox news with his wife yeah. beside him uh, yeah. The other day, where he said, "Look at you know, it, it couldn't have been me. I w- I didn't do it. First of all, but he says I didn't even lose my virginity till well past that, uh, it, with the insinuation that, that, that I don't even know how that's even relevant. I mean, you know, sexual assault is sexual exactly. assault. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it it, it is not ju- sexual assault is not just uh, intercourse, forced like intercourse or what we might call rape. Um, it, it's a lot of things. It's you know, and and, and what is described by." Uh, Christine Blasey Ford is is being pinned down on a bed and her clothes being you know trying to get her clothes off, um, and and being you know in, in what she says she was afraid that she might get hurt or killed like she was very afraid, um, and there was another person in the room as well uh, in what she talks about. So uh, that is a very scary situation that you know. It, it, she understands as an attempted rape that did not involve and him talking about losing his virginity is completely irrelevant. I don't even know because those are two different things. Well, and, and which is, you know, begs the question why he even brought it up. But obviously yeah. uh, it's, 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 it's consistent with the narrative that's come out here. And, yeah. and I was shocked. Well, maybe I wasn't so shocked about what Trump had to say about this. You know, why didn't she report it if it was so severe? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is a guy's a sexual predator himself, and we we, yeah. we know that. So I, I expect yeah. that sort of behavior from him. But you would think that some of the senators, including, by the way, this is the odd thing I find, Lenore, uh, some of the senators going to be voting on that were, were in the Senate back when the Anita Hill experience was was going on. Yeah. Uh, and you would have thought, okay, we're not going to do, we're not going to repeat that process again. But clearly, they seem to want to once again. Simply say, we don't care about the facts in this situation. Yeah, I, and again, it's it's a serious lack of understanding around sexual violence and sexual harassment. It is also just really believing people, women in particular, lie about this. Or if you know, or like you said. Well, maybe it's not a big deal. Like I know there were, I, I was reading some awful um, coverage about uh, someone actually saying, "Well, it's not that big of a deal. It's attempted rape." It's like boys will be boys. Like, like 
I'm like, I, I, my jaw dropped when I there, read it. There I'm was thinking, a conservative uh, conservative congressman that was quoted over the weekend as saying, oh, come on, what college boy hasn't done stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking, boy, oh, boy, if I was a guy, I would be very angry that the bar is so low um, and, and that this is the kind of behavior that we write off as boys will be boys. Like, that's not okay. I have two boys, uh, and that's not okay, and that's not boys will be boys behavior. So... You're right. For me, there's a serious lack of understanding about the impact that these kinds of um, violent crimes have on people. And they're violent. It's not about sex. And I think that's the confusing thing. And even Kavanaugh saying about his virginity, sexual violence is not about sex. That's the tool. But it's it's about power. It's about objectifying the person. It's about, you know, getting away with the situation. So, it's very frustrating to see the comments that are coming out and the real um, ignorance that we, you know, how much has changed since Anita Hill? It's, it's, it really is a, an important question. How difficult is it for somebody like Christine Blasey Ford to, to sit down there tomorrow as she's going to do and, and, and try to explain? And, and I, basically, I guess the, t- the task for her is she's going to have to convince these people that this happened. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to be really glued to the, the screen because I'm, I'm concerned that this is going to turn into what often happens, uh, around these situations, which is to try to, to wreck someone, um, uh, attack her credibility, uh, try to poke holes in her story. Again, recognizing it's many years ago that this happened. And also what we know about neurobiology and the way trauma and, and memories of, of traumatic situations get stored in our brains, that it's, it's, it is going to be, uh, there will be maybe things all over the place and different memories and, and those kinds of things. That doesn't mean a person is lying. So I'm, I'm very concerned about what will happen. I also think it's important to mention right now to your listeners that, you know, yesterday we had Bill Cosby convicted, and he should have been. You know, he is a sexual predator, and, and that judge said that. But, you know, we have him convicted, and we have this situation happening with, you know, uh, the, the President of the United States, uh, you know, admitting to, to sexually assaulting people, but he's not, he's not, there's no accountability there. And now this judge, um, this, this possible appointee to the Supreme Court, sitting there without any accountability as well. Like this, this, is, this is not an okay situation. Well, it's, it's sending a bad message, and I mean, that's obviously uh, the understatement of the day, I suppose, but it, it really yeah. is troubling to know that, uh, that you know, this, it, it's dismissed, really, out of hand. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, this all could have been rectified and or maybe even finalized uh, had they investigated it. I mean, you mentioned the Cosby yeah. thing. I know we're just about out of time here, but I mean, the key element to that in the, of ultimate conviction of Cosby was a police officer that finally said, "I'm going to listen to you. I want to hear your story," and and yeah. and started to investigate it. Yeah, uh, that's not happening here. A, and you know, the, the fact that they've said, "Okay, you can testify tomorrow," may be some, you know one thing, but they, they have already said that they're not going to investigate these allegations, even if they hear it and they prove to be true. They're not. They're going to leave it right there. You know, the yeah. fact they've already scheduled the vote for Friday a little yes, more, so they, they they've already made up their mind what they're going to do here. Yeah, they have, and I think uh, I'm not a legal expert, and certainly not in the states, but probably what has happened is that they have a limitation for when you can um, investigate these kinds of crimes, and I believe it's run out. And so that's the sad fact that even, you know, because I understand that she has four uh, affidavits, sworn affidavits of people corroborating 
um, at various points hearing this uh, uh, experience that she had. Uh, it's not. It's not. We're we're not going to see justice in what we hope there would would be for survivors in this situation. I I'm afraid. Well, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Lenore, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Yeah, today. thank you so much. Take care, Lenore Lukasik Foss from uh, Sexual Assault Center here in Hamilton. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML.